The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. 1-877-528-8255. 1-877-528-8255 is toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. Welcome back to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which is on the shores of Lake Ontario between the cities of Toronto and Niagara Falls, smack dab in the middle of the Great Lakes Triangle. Our toll-free number, once again, is one eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five. My email address is xzone at talkstarradio.com. On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at hotmail.com. And our websites, www.xzoneradio.com and www.xzonetv.com. My guest this hour is Ann Druffel. And uh, we're going to be talking about UFOs. Our first guest uh, tonight was Stanton Friedman, the father of modern-day ufology. And uh, we're, we're working our way up to the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of July, which are the Roswell uh, anniversary dates. After all, the crash of the UFO in Roswell occurred on July the 4th, 1947. So Anne is also involved in ufology. She began investigating UFO reports in Southern California in about April 1957 with the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, known as NICAP, which was directed by the UFO research pioneer Major Donald E. Kehoe, who was uh, formerly of the United States Marine Corps, and became acquainted with Dr. James E. MacDonald through his contacts with the Los Angeles NICAP subcommittee from 1966 to 1971 following the NICAP's demise in 1970 and joined the Mutual UFO Network and then the newly formed Center for UFO Studies. Now, Anne has researched, now listen to this, Nation. she has researched over 2,000 Los Angeles Basin reports, including alleged landings, UFO photo cases, close encounters with physical effects on witnesses and terrain, alleged abduction reports, and other UFO-related phenomena. She is a prolific writer. She has con- contributed over 180 articles on various aspects of the UFO subject to numerous UFO journals and international publications. Frequently speaking on UFOs before civic and educational groups, and Ruffle is noted for her lively slide presentations and Q&A sessions and has presented many papers at UFO symposia, conferences, 
and gatherings. Since 1965, she has been a spokesperson on various aspects of UFOs for TV, radio, and press, as well as consultant, researcher, film writer on numerous UFO documentaries. She wrote the classic book, Tujunga Canyon Contacts, with parapsychologist E. Scott Rogo, and contributed to the other major literary works such as Ron's Story, UFO Encyclopedia, and Rongo's Anthology UFO Abductions. Her most recent UFO-related book is How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abductions, published by Three Rivers Press and Random House in August 1998. Her most recent book is Firestorm, Dr. James E. MacDonald's Fight for UFO Science, which was published by Wildflower Press in July of 2003. When I come back from this two-minute commercial break, Anne Ruffle is going to be joining me, and we're going to be discussing how to properly investigate UFO reports. After all, she has researched over 2,000 Los Angeles Basin reports. This lady knows what she's talking about. Her credibility is one of expert, and she has an excellent reputation when it comes to the UFO community. Andruffle is my special guest. Her website is andruffle.com. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break in two minutes as we continue right here. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing. Old Florida cuisine at its best. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Are you interested in the paranormal, ghosts, UFOs, or psychic phenomenon? Join me, Tim Bartley 
co-host of Talking to Spirits with Lightworkers Tim and Justina, coming mid-January 2017 to the XZBN. We will channel spirits live and talk to them, revealing all kinds of amazing information. Spiritual attachments will be found and removed on the show, and so much more. To find out when you can listen to Talking to Spirits with Lightworkers Tim and Justina, visit www.xzbn.net for listeners on both sides of the veil. Welcome back, everyone. Andruffle is our very special guest. Her website is www.andruffle.com. And Anne, welcome back to the X-Zone. How are you, my dear, and how are things in beautiful California tonight? Oh, they're, they're really nice, nice and sunny, beautiful. <laughs> and you've investigated or researched over 2,000 uh, UFO-related events in your career as a ufologist. Uh, how did you get involved in ufology? What was the event that that christened you into this quest that you've been on for so many years? Well, I've described this several times, uh, but uh, it was something that I saw in 1945 when I was a schoolgirl mm-hmm. from Long Beach, California. Uh, at the time, the World War II was still going on in Japan, and uh, we, uh, I, um, I was coming home on the bus, and I saw this thing in the northeast sky, it, uh, I had been interested in, in astronomy since the age of nine, and I, I was very, very puzzled about it, this thing. It was a cohesive uh, yellow-white light in broad daylight in the sky, uh, two to three times the size of a daytime Venus, but cohesive and very, very bright and definite. And I, I watched this thing. I, I walked home. You know, I watched it a ho- an hour and a half. Wow. Slowly from the north-northeast to the north-northwest. I couldn't figure out what it was. It was very, very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother saw it with me. She, she didn't know what it was. Um, uh, the, um, I, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And then about an hour and a half uh, after I had been watching the thing uh, move very, very slowly, uh, it gave out uh, what, what I call parts of itself which took varying paths away from the main object. And there were 15 or 20 of these uh, tiny little things that sparkled in the sunshine, you know, uh, in the west. Mm-hmm. By that time, it was 4.30, 5 o'clock, around that time. And um, uh, it, uh, this was in uh, uh, late June or July of 1945, uh, before, you know, before the war ended. And... Uh, uh, when the thing uh, gave off these little particles, I tried to get my mother back uh, to to see the these things coming out of the the main object with me because it was so so awesome and frightening. It was frightening to watch this thing, and uh, my mother wouldn't come out. She was cooking dinner, you know, <laughs> more important. And uh, so uh, I I couldn't go out again to watch to watch the thing anymore because it was just so frightening and so awesome and then about two uh, two weeks later the first uh, the first um, uh, the bomb was uh, uh, you know uh, exploded over Hiroshima and uh, uh, so uh, years later uh, I figured I figured that the thing I saw 
was at about the same time the first experimental atom bomb had been exploded, uh, you know, in, in New Mexico, uh, in Frenchman's Flat, but we didn't know about that, you see. Right. Uh, but about the same time, and I developed this hypothesis that perhaps this thing was a, what you call a carrier craft with many little uh, scout ships or surveillance, the smaller ships, uh, come to uh, see what was happening on the Earth because we had entered the atomic age. And during your, your research that you've done over the years, was there an increase in UFO activity at the time of the uh, bombings uh, in Japan of, uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, you see, we didn't know anything about flying saucers. Uh, we didn't even know about the things that, that were being seen uh, in, in the European theater or, or in the, uh, the Japanese theater. Uh, you know what they called uh, Foo Fighters, uh, uh, Foo Fighters, right. and other names they gave. Uh, they did not not have the detail that that later the the UFOs took on. You know, uh, physical details of, of uh, uh, apparently a craft. Mm -hmm. These were just most of these were just uh, uh, lights that, that traveled around the military planes and things. So we didn't know anything about that. They kept that from the public. And the, the stuff about the Foo Fighters came out much later. So apparently, uh, it, it might have been that this thing might have been a collection of, of what you call Foo Fighters, you know, which had mm -hmm. come from the European theater, which had closed down because we had found peace there and, and was moving, you know, over and, and uh, to where the atomic bomb had been exploded uh, that the public didn't know about. Um, the, the first experimental public bomb, uh, atomic bomb. Did you have any idea the day that you watched this this UFO when you were a little girl that what you were watching was going to have such an impact on your life? Uh, no, no, I had I had no idea uh, when when uh, when the thing when the information about the uh, bombing of Hiroshima came out in the papers about two weeks later. Mm -hmm. I tried to understand it. It was on the first page, and I couldn't understand all the technicality, you know, that was involved in atomic bombs. Uh, but um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to. No, I, I was just I, I was just asking that, you know, here you are, a little girl. You're you're watching this object in the sky for, you know, for over an hour. Your mother sees it. Uh, it, it you know, you said it frightened you. Yes. And, and I was just wondering, I, I, I had asked you if you thought at that time that what you were looking at would play such a part in your life. Uh, I had no idea at the time, but uh, when we read about the explosion mm -hmm. uh, of the uh, atom bomb over Hiroshima, um, uh, the same kind of fright, uh, of uh, uh, fright, fear, and yeah. awe struck me, you see while reading about the, the atom bomb that I had felt while watching this thing in the sky, and I couldn't understand that, you see. They were both great mysteries. I didn't know if they were connected or not, of course. But then uh, when Kehoe, uh, Major Kehoe, began to write his books and uh, formed NICAP, or it took the directorship of NICAP, uh, by that time uh, I was, you know, I, I was a, a working and... Um, I uh, I joined. I, I started reading his books first in 1950. You see, and uh, by the time he 
became director of NICAP in 1957, I joined right up, you know, one of the first members that, uh, that joined him. What kind of training did you get with NICAP uh, to, uh, when it came to investigating or researching UFO and UFO-related phenomenon? Well, you see, uh, I, I didn't have uh, any training directly from NICAP because mm-hmm. they took uh, uh, technologically and scientifically oriented people as their investigators. I see. And uh, I, by that time, I had become a professional social caseworker and uh, I had uh, I had the, the the skills. They were skills of interviewing, mm-hmm. of objective value judging, uh, you know, of facts given to you, and also the art of of um, writing accurate records. And so these three skills fit right in with the investigation of UFOs. They certainly do. Um, do you see a big difference? between the way that UFOs are researched and investigated today compared to how they were when ufology was still young? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Um, of course, there are many uh, ex- excellent, excellent scientific and scientifically oriented investigators mm-hmm. in the field. But, but there are also a lot of uh, people who call themselves researchers and investigators, and they will receive cases from the public of what the public, you know, this public person saw in the sky, and it's presented almost immediately on the Internet now as a report. And a lot of these so-called reports are not investigated at all, you see, at least to any depth, so that they, they know that it's a truly unidentified object which you can call a UFO. Uh, we... we um, uh, NICAP in 1965, we formed a um, re- public reporting system and filter center called Skynet. You mm-hmm. see, yes. And there were uh, up to a hundred people around the Southern California area uh, on a map, and we knew all where they lived and when they were available. And the um, I was getting uh, reports from the public from the Griffith Observatory and from one or two of the. Uh, of the major police stations in the area and from two or three of the major newspapers, all of these wonderful sources that were receiving reports from the public. You know, they, they, the public didn't know who, where to call. When yes. they saw something, they, they'd say, I see a UFO, you know, so they, they were referred to, uh, to, to me at Skynet. I was the project coordinator. And then, uh, then I, I would figure out where this person was and call the Skynet member closest to where they were seeing the object in the hopes that the Skynet member could go out and also see it and identify it. And uh, this way, we were able to identify uh, about 80% of the reports that came into us as UFOs because we had, you know, a skilled person close by looking at the same thing and, and figuring out what it, what it was. Now, when you say UFON, are you talking about extraterrestrial entity or is it just something that was unidentified? Well, when I say UFO, uh, my mind tells me uh, unidentified flying object. Mm-hmm. But my own uh, uh, favorite hypothesis is that the physical craft, the unidentifiable physical craft 
that fly through our atmosphere and, and chase our military planes and sometimes land and come very close to witnesses, that, that they are very possibly uh, extraterrestrial in nature. Do you think that these ETs uh, pose a, a threat to this planet? I have never felt from any of the 2,000 and more uh, reports that I've investigated that there was any threat, no. And Ruffle is our special guest, and please stand by. Great having you on the show again. And Ruffle's website is www.andruffle.com. That's A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. And Ann and I will be back on the other side of this news break as the Exxon continues on Talkstar. In the final hour of tonight's show, yes, it is Tuesday night, and yes, that does mean... X minus one. We are going back to 1957, episode number 83, entitled The Moon is Green. That's in the next hour here on the Exxon, live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and our fine family of broadcast affiliates across Canada, the United States, Central America, the Caribbean, South America, the Pacific Rim, 24 Asian countries, and across Europe. And Druffle is my special guest. We're talking about UFOs. And if you'd like to give us a call and ask Anne a question, our toll-free number is one eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five. That's toll-free at one eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five. And how would you investigate a UFO sighting? And what would be the proper procedure for people who are just getting into the field today um, that they should follow when investigating or researching an alleged UFO landing? Well, first of all, I, I believe that a, an investigator or a researcher has to be scientifically oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, uh, some some type of uh, well 
technical, some sort of technical or interviewing ability that, that is beyond just a plain uh, talking to people. Uh, the ability to judge what a person is saying as to whether or not uh, it, you know, it might be acceptable. Um, it's um, a, a kind that you uh, you need to have a, a personality that it, that is uh, friendly and kind, and uh, appears accepting of what they are saying. Uh, there can't be any confrontation with them, of course. Mm-hmm. Everybody would know that. Uh, this, um, but uh, most important is the scientifically objective attitude that uh, a an investigator must have. They they can't believe in their head, you know, that, that uh, UFOs uh, uh, exist, and everyone who sees something strange in the sky is seeing a UFO. Uh, they, you have to be aware of all of the dozens and dozens of things that are have been mistaken in the past and are still being mistaken now as UFOs because they are not known to the to the person who is who is seeing the thing and not recognizing what it is. So. Um, and this could uh, this could include uh, some very strange cloud formations. It could include. Yes. Anything from a weather balloon to an experimental type of craft. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. A- and uh, uh, in this area, especially, a- and uh, Southern California, you know what Southern California is like. But it might be other places around the world. Uh, they have what are called candle balloons. At least yes. they did, uh, did uh, years ago. Uh, they would fill a um, a, a, um, a plastic bag, you know, that had covered. Um, uh, garments that had been dry cleaned, uh, they, they would fill it with hot air, and then at the at the bottom they would arrange a little uh, wooden um, a wooden uh, circle uh, and and put candles on it, and then they would insert that, or they would insert the um, uh, the uh, plastic bag over the the candles which were already uh, lit, and, and this is the way the bag would fill with air, and then they would. They would let it up into the air, and uh, sometimes uh, they, they were generally set off at night. Sometimes two, three, four, five at a time, and uh, these were mistaken time and time again, hundreds of times by witnesses as UFOs. But we learned to identify them uh, by the fact that they traveled with the wind, mm-hmm. or, or that they. Um, you know the, the the way they bounced in the air, uh, or uh, through Skynet, of course. If you could get someone close enough to where the witness was seeing this strange thing in the sky, the witness could go out and identify it as a candle balloon because they they might be closer to the object than the original witness. Interesting. What, what was one of the what was one of your most Profound investigations or research that you did as an investigator, Anne. Oh, how would you, how would you choose? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, uh, the Heflin photos, which are still being investigated, was one of the uh, the main photo cases that was uh, taken on by NICAP in 1965, and uh, it. uh, I, I don't know if you're uh, if you're aware or if your listeners are aware of the Heflin photos. Well, why don't we tell but, them? Uh, they they were uh, photographed 
by a highway engineer in uh, uh, on the edge of Santa Ana, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, a highway uh, maintenance engineer with the uh, San, Santa, Santa Ana Traffic Department. And he had, of course, uh, his, a part of his job was to identify uh, things uh, along the highways that would um, uh, impede traffic or make traffic uh, um, uh, difficult or dangerous. And uh, so uh, one day, uh, August 3rd, 1965, he was traveling uh, about one and a half miles south of the uh, freeway that goes through Santa Ana, and uh, he saw this thing uh, go over his truck. And, uh, of course, he had the camera right by his seat, you know, because he had stopped to photograph a, a, um, it, was a it was a sign, a highway sign, which was being obscured uh, by vegetation so that the people traveling on, the, uh, on this road could not read what the sign said. It was a warning about, you know, a slowdown or something right. like that. So he, he stopped to, fo- to photograph that so that he could report it to, to, his, um, to his office. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time he stopped, uh, uh, a thing threw over from the south over his truck. And uh, he was amazed because it was an unidentified physical aircraft. <laughs> you know, it was a, an, a, it's a sort of an unidentifiable physical aircraft of some kind. And so he snatched up the camera and took a picture, mm-hmm. and, and then it moved farther along. Oh, yes, then, then, then it turned on its side, and he could see on the bottom that there was a, a ring of light going around the bottom, and uh, he, he took a picture of that, and then it straightened again and went off in, further into the distance, and he took a picture of that. And by that time, uh, the, um, the, the, third, the third picture we later discovered showed smoke coming out of the, of the craft, you see. And then the thing uh, went, uh, disappeared into the distance. Now, smoke and, coming out and, of a but cr- it left behind a ring of bluish black smoke in the sky, which was very strange because yeah. it was cohesive. It did not, uh, you know, dissipate with the winds that, that were blowing. And so he went and took a fourth picture. He, he traveled up a, uh, a mile in his truck, uh, got out of the car, and took a picture of the, of the smoke ring in the sky. And uh, so those were the Heflin photos. And to this day, they are still being studied avidly by scientists. Is, isn't it very rare that a UFO expels smoke? Uh, it, it's been known before that there are two or three other photos of, um, uh, you know, from, from around the world where there's either a smoke ring around an object hmm. of basically the same shape as the Heflin uh, craft or... Uh, or you know th- that that uh, it's uh, it's apparent that that uh, such a craft has has uh, left a smoke ring in the sky, but these have not been investigated thoroughly, uh, as far as I know, like the Heflin photos, and uh, so uh, it uh, they are considered now to be probably the most valuable UFO set of UFO photos that have ever been taken. And how about alien abductions? Uh, have you investigated abduction cases? And if so, how did you investigate them? 
Well, in 1973, uh, the, the UFO field uh, suddenly seemed to just flip and change. Mm-hmm. And instead of the, uh, the objects being seen in the sky or photographed in the sky, we were getting numerous reports of, uh, from uh, basically rational, rational and uh, witnesses that, you know, rational, productive, uh, honest witnesses that uh, they were being taken out of their beds at night and into what they perceived to be the interior of a UFO. And sometimes, you know, they, they would see a light shining through their window, but, but there was never the, the, the physical craft that, that they saw themselves going toward. Mm-hmm. At least the, the, those cases are very, very rare. It, it was mostly just that, that uh, suddenly they found themselves uh, aboard uh, what they perceived to be the interior of a UFO with these strange little creatures uh, harassing them and then examining them. And, and um, you know, uh, the cases just proliferated to such a degree that we were overwhelmed here with the so-called abduction cases instead of the, the regular cases that we were used to since 1957. Do you have a hypothesis on why this happened? Uh, at first, uh, I accepted uh, the abduction reports as uh, uh, possibly a UFO entities coming from physical craft mm-hmm. and, and taking uh, witnesses aboard to harass and, you know, sexually harass them. Um, uh, I, I accepted it because that, that was a general feeling in the field, because of the, the rationality and honesty of, the wi- of most of the witnesses you see. Right. But, but then uh, um, there was a, um, it began to be, we began to wonder uh, why uh, the great majority of these cases, about 99 and 99 percent, you know, 9 percent um, of the cases in this, in this area were the, the, the person suddenly awoke in their bed, uh, found, found the creatures standing near them, and then zipped. They were up mm-hmm. into a so-called craft. We wondered why it would have to happen like that. And then this, uh, the hypothesis that, that these things occurred in an altered state of consciousness emerged in the field, which to me sound, uh, sounded very, you know, very good, very scientifically oriented, that, it was, that these, uh, these events took place in an altered state of consciousness because it was um, the witnesses themselves felt that they were fully awake, but there was never any physical proof uh, of the object uh, being physical. There was just the, uh, the story, you see, and the fact that the person awoke up from a state, uh, from a sleeping state into another state that they perceived to be a wake, true waking consciousness but which could well be what we call an altered state of consciousness. Now, would this be sleep paralysis? Uh, no, it would be different from sleep paralysis. Uh, the, the particular altered state of consciousness, to, to my knowledge, has not yet been identified, uh, but it's uh, very close to the 
state of consciousness into which uh, shamans, you mm-hmm. know, in indigenous peoples, enter uh, when they when they when they uh, want to go into a spiritual dimension. And uh, a lot of these shamans, uh, they they are caught in between the the space time continuum we live in and the spiritual dimension they're headed in into a state of consciousness called the realm of the trickster, you see. And uh, this is where information that they later find out is faulty is given to them. But uh, some of them, you know, uh, think that it's from the spiritual dimension instead of from a state of consciousness in which faulty information is being given to them. And, I, I and hope I'm making sense. Yes, you did. Yes, yes. you did. So basically, they're, uh, they're going into a having a spiritual encounter rather okay. than a, a, an alien abduction encounter. Uh, well, when I say spiritual, uh, I mean a good. Yes. A, a good spiritual um, encounter. Uh, but the, the realm of the tricksters, so to speak, or, the, or this uh, state of consciousness in which faulty information can be given by a, a phenomenon that the, uh, the, the Irish call them a, a fairy folk. Yes. The, the uh, Muslims call them jinns. Uh, they're called by different names in every culture, major and minor, in the entire world down through the millennia. So, so these uh, encounters with strange inter- interdimensional creatures uh, uh, giving faulty information and, uh, and harassment, uh, generally sexual harassment. And we've got to take a break. We'll be back on the other side with Andruffle, www.andruffle.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Hi, I'm Larry Lawson, host of Paranormal Stakeout. With over 36 years in law enforcement, I have learned a few things. The most important is the proper gathering and preservation of evidence is vital to putting the bad guy behind bars. It's no different in the world of paranormal investigation, whether it's the search for the afterlife, cryptozoology, UFOs, and extraterrestrials. How we gather the evidence, preserve that evidence, and present it to a jury of our peers will make the ultimate difference in proving the existence of worlds and entities that are beyond our imagination. Join me, Larry Lawson, every week on Paranormal Stakeout when, along with my guests, we'll take a journey to prove with indisputable evidence what man has struggled to believe for centuries. Go to xzbn.net for the broadcast schedule and check me out at paranormalstakeout.com. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. 
We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. Andruffles are a very special guest this hour, www.andruffle.com. And how many different um, alien visitors are we getting on this planet? Any idea? Well, you see, uh, to me, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, physical UFOs that are seen in the sky mm-hmm. and chased by jet planes... Uh, these might contain entities from from extraterrestrial sources, uh, but uh, we, uh, as far as I know, we don't know anything about about them except, to my mind, uh, they are not friendly. They are not unfriendly. They are simply surveying our Earth to see what we're going to do with it. You know, <laughs> whether we're going to blow it up or anything like that. Um, the um, the the uh, re- uh, other researchers say that there are up to uh, 70 different types of uh, entities, but these these are generally the researchers that believe that the um, that the so-called abductors are physical uh, in themselves and are from the physical UFOs. Uh, this is a this is a scenario that uh, I, I do not accept. Uh, I, I have uh, a uh, separate phenomenon. I mean, a separate scenario that uh, the uh, so-called abductions, which occur in altered states, are a separate phenomenon from the UFO field itself. Uh, It's something that's happened uh, to uh, cultures around the world for millennia. They're they're basically all the same, except that they they, uh, have the ability to shape-shift and take different shapes and work different kinds of clothing uh, according to the culture in which they appear, you see. And the harassment that they, that they uh, impose upon their victims uh, differs according to the culture, what the culture can, can accept, you see. I see. I, I mean, like in, like in Ireland, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leprechauns. Well, no, uh, no, you see, these, these creatures are both good and bad. They're an internet-dimensional type of creature, and they're, they're both good and bad. And it's the bad type uh, uh, of this interdimensional type of creation uh, that that uh, causes the so-called abductions. But of course, a leprechaun is uh, is uh, uh, basically a good fairy, like a brownie. All right. Uh, but the, there are other types of so-called fairy folk that the Irish have reported for centuries that uh, that uh, do a certain sexual harassment but it's a, a milder type than than what goes on in our country or or in muslim countries you see 
And we have to say so long for now, but it's been a great hour having you with us here on the Exxon. Thanks very much for sharing your knowledge, your experience, and your expertise with us here on the Exxon. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care of yourself, Anne. You too. Bye-bye, dear. Anne Druffel, www.andruffel.com, one of the most experienced uh, UFO researchers and investigators that we've had here on the show with over 2,000 cases to her credit. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break and the news at six and a half minutes past with X minus one. The moon is green from 1957. It is episode number 83. We'll be back on the other side as we continue live and around the world right here in the X Zone on Talkstar. <laughs> 